Let's talk to interesting people. Let's talk about the process of seeing things differently. Let's talk about the craft of molding truth and fiction together to arrive at something new and exciting. And let's have fun while doing it. Welcome to the True Fiction Podcast. Welcome to the True Fiction Podcast, where we dive deep into the minds of incredibly talented and creative individuals and try to unravel the mysteries behind their inspirations. I'm your host tonight. My name is Patrick Boggs. Joining me on this fantastic journey are my co-hosts of True Fiction, the uncanny Norbert Yates and the magnanimous Marshall. How's it going tonight, fellas? Going great. Doing good. Good. Good to hear. Good to hear. Hey, we got a great guest tonight. Our guest this evening is a artist, a author, a tattooer, and a podcaster, and he hails from beautiful New York City. Is that right? New York City? I, I live right outside of New York City. He's part of the, the, the super close Bronx, Queens, Manhattan is a troubled area. I live just outside of that. Okay. Okay. Just outside of New York City. Now, there we go. I, I get a lot of clients around New York, even from Jersey and PA and stuff like that. So not that far. Yeah, cool. Our guest is Dan Hink, and we are excited to have him here. He is an amazing artist, tattooer, author. I have no clue how he does this all together, and we're going to try to dig into that and see how that works. What was first? Was it the art? Was it the tattoos? Oh, definitely the art. Ever since I was like a little kid, I used to be, I was like the kid that drew everything. Whether it was like role-playing games, drawing the characters, or later on, they got into punk rock, and I was paying everyone with all the jackets, and doing all the band flyers and stuff, because bands had no money. So I was doing the album covers and stuff like that. But yeah, it was, I, I was always the guy that drew. In your sketches, you have a really interesting technique with the, the kind of the slash lines, the hash. You almost don't even put lines in it other than just to shade out all the... Uh... Yeah, sure. The shapes of the form originally started with wood prints, and people would do that as wood prints. And then it became fashionable in the 60s or 70s with some of my artistic idols. There's a bunch of them. Al Williamson, John Talbot is my absolute favorite, Bernie Rison. But they all did that in different degrees and with different like artistic takes. They did that sort of concentrating on patterns and flows as opposed to like hard lines and everything. Yeah, I dig it. When you are doing your art, I looked at your portfolio page. Are you a someone who is fussy about your tools or less concerned about that and more focused on what it is you're trying to achieve? There's two different camps. Seems like there's the ultra uh, technicians that are obsessed with their tools. And then there's the other ones that are more abstract thinking conceptually. I just want to convey this idea. I'm not as concerned about the tools themselves. Right. Well, there's a couple different takes on this. As long as it works well and lets me express what I want to express, I appreciate the tool. I don't care if it's like a $5 brush or like a $50 brush, as long as it works well. So desire labels and like having the right brushes and the right paints and stuff, I don't really care about. What I really care about is the end product. But crappy stuff won't let you work with it. Like I've tried to do oil paintings and I've tried to do drawings with crappy brushes. And not even crappy, but like the yeah, Michaels or like bargain bin brushes, they're horrible and they will ruin everything you did. So you might like pencil this intricate drawing and then you get down to ink it or paint it and the brushes betray you. 
Yeah. So when you go out, step back and when you're thinking about doing a piece, do you have a very concrete idea of when you start out where you want to go or do you have a germ of an idea and you just let the execution flow and take you where you know, no, I, I have a very concrete idea of what I want. And what I do is like, I like to use a lot of reference. So like if I do like an outdoor scene, like if he's at the lake, let me get pictures of the lake. If he's wearing like military outfit, let me look at a couple of different pictures of military outfits. You know, so before I start everything, I know where I'm going. It's a little bit loose because the way I draw is, I get this from a long time, by the way, who I interviewed on my podcast. I was surprised he even answered me. <laughs> he's such a big name. But what he does is he does these like little, very sketchy thumbnails of how everything flows. So he can like play around with it until so it has the maximum impact. And when it does, then he gets down to starting detailing it. So you definitely want to make sure that you have everything right before you start detailing it. That's one problem a lot of artists have. They'll start detailing something. They go, oh, I should have moved this. I should have moved that. Ah, oh, I spent like an hour drawing that. I'm not going to do that again. And then, yeah, that, that just ruins the potential of the, the piece of art. You spend a lot of time with thumbnails and composites. Yeah, and I, what I do is, so I have the idea, and then I'll research, and I'll get all the, the photos go along with it. And By the way, one thing that my art school teacher told me is that photos will lie. They flat stuff out. They, like, darken color and stuff. You can only use them as a broad reference. If you use the part as a broad reference and sketch up what you want, now you're set. And once you're set, once you actually start detailing stuff, it really helps to have most of that down. At least for me, it does. So if I'm going to do like a military uniform, I want to settle on this military uniform. If I want to do a bald guy that's all cheap, I want to settle on that before I start doing it. And I might change the minor details along the way there. It's pretty much... A done deal by the time we get down to, to doing the final pistols. Yeah, very cool. So are you doing all your covers in your books? For all my books, I prefer to do my covers. Uh, there are a lot of people that do covers. And if, if somebody came to be like uh, Fred Frizzetta or something, of course, I wouldn't turn them away. <laughs> but you know, like this is going to sound incredibly cocky there again. I do not mean it this way. But people... I have not seen a cover artist that captures what I want to capture for my books. I think I'm the best cover artist for my books. Or Dan Hanks' books. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, actually. Yeah, your art is, it's, it's so visceral. Reminds me of, gosh, what was that guy's name? that used to do the Black Flag covers. Uh, yours is uh, like Pettibone? Or? Raymond Pettibone, yeah. Yeah, Raymond Pettibone, yeah. So and the I, subject I actually matter. did, yeah. just to go off topic for a minute, this is on topic. The band Indecision, there's like the more hardcore version, metalcore version of Black Flag. So they told me, they're like, we want you to be our Raymond Pettibon. So I did a bunch of illustrations for them. Nice. Yeah. Do you really like working with, on, on a, it's not even alternative anymore. It's just like the, it's punk rock, hard stuff. Yeah, it's, I don't really care if a band blows up or not. I think Nirvana is a great band. I don't care that everybody likes them. I know a lot of people in the interview I've seen lower admitted like, oh, they sold out. No, they didn't. They didn't sell out. I don't care if you're big or if you're tiny. If you sound good to me, you sound good to me. And that's all I care about. And I'd love to do your artwork. 
I've done artwork for bands that probably like three people that I know of knew who they are. <laughs> and then I've sent letters out and I've talked to Obituary and Megadeth and much bigger players on the scene about doing artwork for them. Wow, that's very cool. So you was talking about how you're the best artist for your books. When an idea starts in my head, Sometimes when I get done with it, it surprises me by being better than I thought it originally was. Sometimes it's the idea didn't quite gel like I thought it would. Do you have? I, I think that? all that happens, by the way. Yeah. yeah. You're like, this is going to be a masterpiece. But you're like, what did I do with that? And then there's somewhere you're like, it's not going to be that much. And like at the end of it, you're like, wow, that's really good. But go ahead. I'm sorry. When you get to the end of the process and then you have one that that idea you in your mind, you thought, man, that's going to be killer. And it doesn't happen the way you it's it, it, it should. Do you go back and say, I'm going to do a different one? Do you say, OK, it depends, I'm sure, on the situation. But as a tendency, do, is your mind, I'm going to rescue this piece or I'm going to start over? How do you approach it when it doesn't hit your own vision? Most often I try to rescue the piece, but if I think that it's going to be way more work rescuing it than just redrawing it, then I'll just redraw it. And so it depends. And that's why I said I go through a lot of sketches, but I know where I'm going when they actually sit down to put in like the definite marks that are going to be the piece. Usually when I get down to it and it's evolved over time, like what you think is going to be great, like. 20 years ago, he's dealt you from experience. Yeah, that's not going to work. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure as you get on a little more developed, you have more tools in your kit to rescue a piece too. It's easier to decipher when something is going off track and, you know, how, okay, but I can do this and I can make this better. And right. I'm sure you go through that kind of mental process. I saw different things that you've worked on. Is there a medium that you like more than another? No, I wouldn't say so. Um, it, it's part of, like my absolute two favorites are painting and drawing. Like I, I figure I can convey the most with that, but then I enjoy writing too. It's, it's, it's hard to call, you know, but it, it's, if I do any one thing for too long, I feel like a little bit burned out on that. And like, you gotta switch it and work on something else. Okay, now this is a question I ask a lot of people that are involved in multiple things. What do you think you're strongest at and what do you feel like you enjoy the most? I think the thing that I get the, definitely the most accolades for is my painting. I, I even had like members of Princess family tell me that they liked it. And I, I wow. had C. Bissett who did the... Alan Moore Swamp things tell me he loved my work. And that was high praise, but I, I definitely have like more accolades for my painting than anything else. Although people have people like my artwork, but the artwork is hit or miss because I have such a distinct style. They don't go necessarily when you capture it, they go, is that a solid like? Yeah. I'm looking at a lot of your tattoo work, and I think it's really cool that you've actually duplicated or maybe I want maybe duplicate's not the right word but you've actually put some of your paintings on people's backs. I think that is awesome. Uh, 
Go ahead. It's actually people have asked that of me. I figured it's real pretentious to slap <laughs> my own stuff on there unless you ask me. But it, when people, I did, I did a Thulu piece with a diver. And I remember the guy, he had a couple of tattoos by me. He's oh, I love that piece, that painting you did as a Beth piece. I was like, okay. So what's the difference? I know there's tools are different, but it, do you basically go at it a different way? I know that a lot of times it's a stencil work when you do a, at least from what I've seen on tattoos, it's a lot of stencil work. But what's the difference between painting and, and your tattoo and your thought process? Guys, it's huge difference. I went to art school and I moved to New York City. And my first idea was I'm going to be like a big time comic book artist. I'll be like, I don't know, <laughs> even Alan Moore. Like, Alan Moore is an amazing writer, but you Neil know, Adams, uh, maybe. Yeah, I, I like Neil Adams stuff. I know that there's a lot of people that are really great. What's the name he does? Hellboy. He's awesome. No, no, yeah. No, so, yeah. like, I'll write and I'll draw my own stuff. And, and I was like, I was like, this is going to be the way it goes. And then I moved to New York City and it's, it took forever. It took me like a year and a half to get an interview with DC Comics. And that's when they almost went bankrupt. The movie yeah. saved them. If it wasn't for the movies, they'd have been long gone. Same with the Marvel. But they were super negative and they just wanted to draw superheroes and. I was like, I don't do that. We don't have a job for you. Yeah, they're horrible. But I'm glad because I've interviewed a lot of comic artists I've looked up to on my podcast. And now they're art school teachers because wow. the companies kept all the rights to everything. They were just hired work and hired guns that got paid almost nothing. That's despicable, really. Yeah, no, it's pretty sad. But I, I wanted to do that. And then I was like, when tattoo was offered to me, because it's my brother's friend, so my artwork, he's like, that guy needs a tattoo. And he offered to apprentice me a tattoo. And I was thinking, I'll do this until I get a quote, real job. And I remember my first day at a decent shop, and I made half my rent in one day. I was like, holy shit, I can't believe how great this is. You know, but the, there's a huge learning curve. Like I went to art school, I was like, I figured I had it made and it was a little cocky because like you're early 20 years and stuff. And I was like, yeah, you know, these guys don't hold a kid. Let me no. There's so much you have to learn. It's so different. You know, there is yell to it and there's artistry and you need both of them. It, you'll have some of the old school people that don't even like to be called tattoo artists. They like to be called tattooists. And they say, oh, it's a noble trade, pipe fitting or electric work or something like that. But I think that's just, they're being careless. I remember when I started out, I, I had a portfolio and they're all like little trendy flash pieces because that's all you do when you're starting out. But then I had my portfolio from art school. It was like, it's middle covers, like photos and stuff. And I remember that you should drive some of the old school people of the shop nuts. They'd be like, what, you think you can draw or something? I was like, actually, I do. <laughs> <laughs> but most of the people are out of business now. Because people's eyes have been open to features. I mean, real area like that, that doesn't look like a tattoo. Who says what tattoo looks like? And, and I, I go on and on about this, but there's a lot behind it. And, and there's a couple things they are right about, and there's a lot they're not right about. It's hard to filter through what the correct approach is when they're just being super negative about everything, and they're afraid that you're taking their money. 
Yeah, it's probably the bottom line right there. Yeah. I remember the last thing I was saying. I, I remember there's one guy I worked with, and he owned a shop, and he used to chat you in, like, the early 90s, 80s. That's when the real money was there to be made. And there is called flats at the time. So there's posters on the wall, pictures, and you pick a picture. So he would just do flats. So they're basically designs drawn by somebody else that he would bang out. And this is in the early 90s, and he'd make eight grand a week. In the 90s, which is like, what, 10 grand now, 11 grand now? Oh, probably more like 14, probably, <laughs> 15. But what I'm saying is they're mad when people came in that they thought would take their money because they're like, oh, this is my golden goose. Yeah. So you're an artist and you, you, you paint on, on canvas board, still illustration board, paper, whatever, uh, a flat surface that you can control. When you're a tattoo artist, the canvas could be all kinds of different things, shapes, sizes, uh, textures, you name it, it's different. I, does that affect how your your art, or is it to the point now where you've done it enough and it's just, okay, I, I can make this work however, whoever shows up. You learn what's going to work well as a tattoo and what's not going to work well. And there's a lot that you learn as it goes along. Placement of the body, skin color, tattoos seem to flow with muscles. I've been tattooing for 24 years. So once you have all that down, you know almost instantly you're like, you want this in your arm? Okay, we can do it big, and that's it, or that won't work in your arm at all. So you, you learn right off the bat. You're the person that will say to the client, yeah, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. Or, yeah. Are you a funny story? Sure, we're always up for a funny story. Absolutely. <laughs> so I've been tattooing. I was like, I had made 15 minutes of fame in the tattoo world where I was like in all the magazines and people were, paper me to fly out the conventions. And I remember a guy came in and I think he came in because of that. Oh, he's a big name. I want to to me. And so he's, I want you to do a back piece on me. And I was like, oh, cool. What do you want, man? And I want Jesus and all the angels that have been coming back to earth. <laughs> and I was like, what? Cause I'm, I'm the horror guy. All of them, right? All of them. <laughs> yeah. But I'm the horror guy. So I do a lot of, like I did piss the hell back piece and stuff. So, so I'm like, what out of my entire portfolio told you that I should do that? And he goes, oh, man, I love your realism. I go, Jesus isn't real. <laughs> that was the end of that conversation. <laughs> but yeah, wow. I wasn't going to do it. Oh, wow. That is, that's interesting. I was going to ask you, too. So you have other people, I'm sure, working in your shop. And when somebody comes in and says... Hey, I want this. I want a rose. I'm pretty sure Dan isn't going to say, yeah, I'll do it. Unless, oh, a rose with a skull in the middle and a knife or something. I have some long-term clients. Like they've been getting tattooed for 15 years by me. If they're like, yeah, my son wants this or my wife wants this. I'm like, all right, I'll do it. But if you just come in and walk in the door, we have a girl named Summer there. She's really good. You were like, particularly good Summer broke. So Summer just handing them off and go, yeah, these are all the people to choose from. What do you think? Nice. That's very good. What's the name of your shop? The Abyss. The Abyss. That's right. Okay. What you were saying about the gentleman that came in that you refused, do you feel like with all your time and tattooing now, it's almost like you're protecting your brand in a way? 
of whether there's certain tattoos you will do and you won't do or yeah i guess if i spin it out i can say it's like that it's more i'm really not gonna be into it if that's what you want if i'm not 100 percent into it i'm not gonna put out the best work you can possibly do and i don't want people to go oh that's what danny's work looks like no i want to put out the best of property so it's gonna be a struggle to get through it in a way, if you're going to turn around, I'm doing them a favor by, by not doing it. <laughs> that makes sense. You know. I was thinking about something the other day. I think I want to get rid of at least most of the paintings I sold this year. I have all my paintings in, basically, they're in shelves. I don't look at them. I've got Frank Frazetta up, uh, Neil Adams picture, uh, Dave Dorman, but mainly Frank Frazetta. I interviewed Dave for my uh, podcast. He's awesome, yeah. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. Do you like to... I, this is not a right or wrong answer. I'm just curious on how you think. I just feel weird putting my stuff up. I put it up one time, and I was like, eh, I don't know. And then I took it down and put it in the shelf. In my tattoo shop, in my room at the tattoo shop, it's covered with paintings and drawings. At home, I have almost nothing. I have lots of John Harris. He does awesome work. I have his stuff. I have some of Michael Whelan's stuff. I have some of Leonardo Giancola's stuff. So I have other people and stuff. I don't really like my stuff. Well, why do like how narcissistic do you have to be to go? Yeah, I'm mean, gonna plaster the whole place with stuff that I spent hours working on. I think Frank Frazetta did. <laughs> well, I oh, can't really say anything bad about him because uh, Frank but, is a master. <laughs> yeah, if you're that good, who are you gonna look at that's better? I mean, I, I know that Frank Frazetta, Frank Frazetta, he had a little bit of attitude, but he, he should. He, he did amazing work. But I know that there were other people he looked up to. Like Jeffrey Jones is an artist who stuff I like a lot. And I know that Frank Frazetta said he's the best painter of our time. I I know that there were other people that presented light. I'm yeah. surprised he didn't put more for them. He, he made, everyone does this. He had a stroke. and he, He's like famous for going back and repainting his stuff. After the stroke, he'd go back and be stuff, and he'd fuck up some of the original plastics. And at one point, they had to just ban it. His wife had to ban it from working. What, yeah, he banned them from the museum, right? Yeah. And they wouldn't let him touch the well, originals. They they wouldn't let him touch the originals of the museum, but the, it's a whole sad story with the museum. Because the two sides of the family didn't get along. And one guy tried to, like, he broke in there with the bulldozer, and he sold a bunch of the painting and then wow. he said to start with tech dad because the other ones were misusing it or abusing it. I, I don't know. I, I don't get into these. I don't know. But I, I know there's a lot of animosity with all that. That's one of the things when you have, what, $40, 50000000 million worth of original art or any kind of inheritance like that. It Generally, most of the time, that doesn't work out very well. The unfortunate thing, too, with the presenter was like, a lot of his concept, he sold back in the day. Like almost all artists do that. They sell their stuff to keep going. Bernie Reston, he did an illustrated version of Frankenstein. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's like probably the best illustrated version of any novel you've ever seen because he did some amazing work. But he spent three years doing all the pages for that. And he had to keep selling those pages as he was doing them just to support himself. Yeah, the, the main page was it? come up for auction not that long ago and it went for what a million six or something like that i, I, mean, I believe it I, his stuff is amazing he probably sold it for what 300 <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> 
Back in the 70s, yeah. 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 That's yeah. nuts. Yeah. Yeah. I met him at a convention, and it was so depressing, because I really look up to his stuff. He's a total game changer. And I remember him saying, after he did the Frankenstein stuff, he realized that, that was the best work he was ever going to do. So he just quit drawing for a couple of years. <clears throat> and then when he came back, he was never as detailed. Yeah, that's obvious. And I don't know... I've heard him talk about breaking his wrist and that that was the reason why he couldn't do it. But I don't know if he, and but then he also said something about being burnt out. So I don't know if both of those things contributed or one was over the other, but I have heard both of those well, stories. This, this is what I'll say. Okay. The breaking of the wrist thing. When I line everything, I use, they're called micro mini brushes. They're like 20 over zero brushes. So I, I do it all with the brush. When he did it, he would do it all with what do they call those? The pens. The, the you no, know, they're like, they're heat wrap pens. They're like two wear, but he do everything with pins. So I understand if you broke your wrist, you'd have a hard time maintaining a consistent line, but that's in the pen. What about the pencils? And there are times that Bernie Rustin has done the pencil of someone else's income. And if you got somebody who's a really good inker like Brian Boland, to come in in ink, Bernie Rizzo's stuff, it would look amazing. But he, he wasn't, I, I think he got burnt out. He just wasn't doing the little detail and he didn't need to quit that. I, I also think of one of the conversations that we've had as a group is we talk about the conceptual versus experimental geniuses. The conceptual geniuses will bust out and do their best work in their 20s and the experimental geniuses will tinker tinker here and by the time they're in their 50s 60s and 70s they're doing their best work and i almost wonder if bernie wrightston was one of those conceptual geniuses with his inks where he visualized things and that was his th that was as good as it was going to get like the matrix was the best the wajahowskis were the Wachowski brothers Wachowski's sister, too, sister. Right? that's why i didn't say <laughs> i don't know what to call it. but anyway that's the idea is that or Orson Welles does his best work at 25 and right. never hits that mark again. Right. A lot of a lot of directors do that. John Carpenter, Toby Hooper, Wes Craven. They had their period and they have a slow buildup and then they have a pinnacle and then a dramatic fall off. Yeah. And there's think, think of all the bands that have the amazing first out al album. And then you never I that. You hear my theory? What's that? Francis Mudhoney or Black Flag or these are all bands I like. And so when Mudhoney came out with their first album, they probably were working with their songs for five years and EPs out, they had playing them live. They were, you know, refined and polished and like the the best of the best in the in their mind when they came out. Then when they were asked to do a sequel, like a follow-up album, they were like Oh, we have a year to come up with what was previously 10, 10 years worth of planning to put out the best songs ever. So it's hard to match it up. There, there are bands, I think, that started out like, eh, and then they got way better. A, a lot of bands, the reason why the first album is the best is because, especially a lot of indie bands, like indie bands is really a, like a project of love for them. So they put 110% into that forever and it finally comes and they finally get on oh my god it's amazing but then they spit 
they would need a few years to recover. Yeah, I think you're probably right on that. And I wonder how many bands would have done better if instead of having these rocket albums that just shoot up to the top, they had one that did mediocrely good and that let them to keep working on their songs for a little while. I don't know. I, I think it's a mentality in the band, too. Another band I like a lot um, was like early Metallica. And like early Metallica, they just kept getting better and better until one point they dropped off. <laughs> but the thing is, I don't think they were like, hey, because they got success almost right away. People said they're amazing. And, and they just kept working at it, working at it and going, this is great. Um, I think it helps when you don't have like a label behind you that goes, you're our money maker. You need to come out with something. You need to go and tour. We need the next album out. The complicating thing with talking about band is you have multiple members and their creative juices and their experiences and their life experiences can take them to different points and it's hard for that to synchronize and go forward i would think and i I was trying to think about solo artists like how you know how many of them go up and and do what you're talking about they they put together the first album and then whether that trajectory with solo artists is similar to uh groups i I can't really i think that a solo artist would be more likely to have a upward progression but i don't even i don't even know you're probably right i don't know it it might be because it's like more of a slow burn so you have to really do something to uh, catch people's attention so they've been out there grinding the wheel pedal the metal for so long that when they finally start to get some recognition they put a little bit of perspective. Moving back to the art world for Mad, or you could say this in the writing world, it's the same thing. So if that first thing that you come out with, like, all right, I, I'll say one, one thing I've seen with a lot is like tattoo artists. If you come out and you just blow up at 20, it'd be like, oh my God, you're so good. You blow up at 20, but by the time you're like 25, you're ruined because you blow up too early. Is that because of the success and that you're psychologically not trying to prove because you've already got all this accolades? Is it the lifestyle, do you think, that rails the young It's combo the whole thing. And the thing is, if you blow up when you're young, like when you're like 20, then most people who blow up, first of all, they weren't a popular kid in school. So this is the most attention they've ever had for anything. And then all of a sudden they're told, like, you're untouchable. Like, everybody is licking their ass. You know, like, yeah, that's me. Yeah. And the thing is, I'm 50 now. I'm a way different person than I was when I was 20. I couldn't see a 20-year-old me. <laughs> Imagine if everything was laid out in the red car before you when you're 20. That, you know, yeah, that, that's the way to, they talk about spoiling the child. Yeah, that's the way. It reminds me of uh, a friend of mine. This was 10 years ago. When the, when I don't think it was the whole Sex Pistols got back together and they were touring and my buddy called me and said, Hey, Pistols are going to be in Chicago. Do you want to oh, go? The, and I, the filthy lucre tour? Yeah. 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 <laughs> and I told him, I said, you know what? I'm going to pass. I'm not angry anymore. So <laughs> <laughs> back in the day, I think they were maybe they're one of my favorite bands. Like at one point they were my favorite band, but when they came out of the filthy lucre tour, like they just made it clear. We're doing this for the money. Like, why do I want this is one of those kind of bands? Yeah. One thing I was ta- I was thinking about when you was 
when you was talking about the the twenty year old blowing up, I was it, I was just thinking about this in art in general, the music, writing. It could be anything, but if you blow up too early, do you lose touch with the struggles of the human condition? You become less interested in trying to express that through your art, and whether that precipitates. A, a decline because you're not as in tune with people. If that makes any sense. Yeah, no, it makes sense. But I, I don't think that's like the solace or everything. The reason why is because it depends on what you're into. So if like you write like sci-fi or something, it's epic, like sci-fi, like space, like Star Wars, sci-fi. If you do that, it doesn't matter if you eat 10 years and you're not really interacting with people during the 10 years because none of your output is based off that. But I think if you're like Johnny Cash or something, it's like very much based on day-to-day real-life stuff and the way people are, the way situations are, then yeah, you do need that, that contact. Although I think that it probably is like a bad sign of this era. If you do something that like has more of a bland mass appeal, you will up a lot faster. Although you're also going to fall. Like how many bands have had that one or two album? It's like a, it's a blockbuster. It sells like 20 million copies. And then by the next album or two, they're gone. And then you have people like Johnny Cash, they're productive their whole life. Yeah. And he, he always seemed to be able to reinvent himself in, in a certain way. I still think Hurt is probably the most emotional song of his in terms oh, of awesome. like, it's I awesome feel it. Song, yeah. When I hear it, it's, you just feel it. You just feel how well, the struggle. You know that the, uh, Trent Reznor from Nitro Hills wrote this song? It is originally a Nitro Hills song, but right. it's way better when John DeCast does it. And Trent Reznor said after he heard the Johnny Cash version, it was so good, he will never play that song again. Oh, wow. I didn't know. That's interesting. No, I I remember him saying that it's Johnny's song. He said, I wrote it, but it's Johnny's song. You're right. Well, he's right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The first time I heard the song, I cried. I just, it just was so heartbreaking. And if Johnny Cash's story and at that point in, in time, man, that was just super heavy. So I thought that was really cool. Did he lose June when he recorded that? I, no, I, I don't know. So. I know that was I don't later think in so. life. Yeah. 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 And, and Johnny Cash is one of these people now that is just such a legend. And he crosses all kinds of genres, people that hate country still. But I like Johnny Cash. Blues, I think, is the country. Just, you know what? I'll tell you what I like about there was a time when country was just a pure good music and i think they did a thing in the late 60s and 70s and 80s got this nashville sound and it just took all the music started sounding the same and there is a great album it's it's towns van zandt music it's done by i can't remember the guy's name now oh he did uh, copperhead road but he did oh. this he did the album and he ended up taking away the nashville sound it was just a guitar and maybe a harmonica and drums. It's one of my favorite albums. And Steve it, Earl. Steve Earl, that's right. Yeah, Steve Earl did it. And it's amazing. And that's the thing I really liked. I, I would always tell you that I'm not a country fan. But if you go back into the 50s and 40s, I like that music. I enjoyed that music that was called country. 
And that's where the root was. That's where the root came from. Country blues got together and they made rock and roll. So that's why I'm enjoying that music. Yeah, probably well, yeah, like more of a ripple edge. I feel like whenever any studio gets in there, they always think that they're better at whatever it is in the way else. Whether it's like the publisher. I, I've had publishers that will take my stuff and then we'll say, oh, I want to, they'll have all these cool edits. So basically, they're rewriting myself the way they would write it. I'm like, yeah, fuck you. I don't need you. <laughs> but I'm sure they do that with everyone. Like they, they do it with actors, they do it with musicians. Like I've heard from musicians, they're asked to change something. They say they don't want to. They say, okay, well, you don't have to change it. But if you want us to put it out, you have to change it. Yeah. Yeah, it becomes about control and money. And it should be about art. It definitely should be about an art. I'll, I'll say two things about it. One is they're always wrong. So the big like corporate entities, like if you look at the bands that blew up, they thought they were going to fail. Yeah. Like Guns N' Roses, they weren't selling records. MTV wouldn't play to them. Finally, you know, the company, the record company got MTV to play one time at midnight and they blew up. Thought Rob Zombie wasn't gonna make it anywhere, and, and he's on Beavis and Bedhead, and suddenly he blows up. They thought Nirvana was gonna be like, Yeah, we'll get a little bit of indie cred off the ice, we'll put them out, but they won't be anything big. And then they blew up, yeah, they, they never know. No, and then they're lining up to cash in if they can. And then is you would think they would learn their lesson, like with Game of Thrones. I don't know if you guys watch Game of Thrones, but I thought. Until that last episode, or the last season, rather, it was amazing. But what happened is they started slowly towards the end, especially as they started running out of Jordan Owens' source material. They started going, we're Hollywood screenwriters. We know better. We're, we're a better writer. We're smarter than they are. So they just started changing everything. So that's the way that they think it should be. But that doesn't mean that it's well done. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard so many fans complain about that last season. More than, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I was going to ask you, on your books, I know you've got Chris, Christmas is Cancelled, which is a it, it's a novel, and it's graphic as well. Do you do a lot of the graphic and novel, or the, I mean, they're maybe short-form novels, but... It's like a novella, it's, I don't know, like it's a chapter book. 40 pages. It, I, I've actually, I have a collection of my short stories out. It's called Down Movies in the Dark by Demons Driven. <laughs> All right. And, and that collection of my short stories, that story is in that collection. It's nine stories total. But um, it, it's it's been in collections. It's been in what's called a chapbook, which is like very common in Europe. But like people in the U.S. have no idea what it is. I, I knew Swatterpunk did it in chapbooks for me. And the... 300 copies. They gave me 200 and they kept 100. The, their 100, they sold out with right away. Wow. Like 200, I still have copies. Really? It's people don't know what they are. Like oh. they used to be like religious or political pamphlets, but it became like trendy. I'll put a short story in there. But yeah, in Europe, not in the US, because people don't know anything in the US. Are they like <laughs> the chick tracks? The, Those little the small little. No, I I know what you're talking about. Like they're not that small. Okay. They're more like like TV guy size. Not as thick as TV guy, but like TV sure. guy size and probably about forty pages. 
You know, I was when I was in Europe, and this was a long time ago, I thought it was interesting that almost every band had a magazine. There was a Smith's magazine out, and there's all, and I don't know if it was put out for fans or whatever, but I, I, it's nothing I've ever seen around here. They were like almost like they were mimeographed or something. They didn't look professionally created, and it was just people talking about the Smiths and like letters about them and stuff. Dilly, I I understand you're saying everyone had a magazine. Like, seemed like it, yeah. Like Like the magazine they were featured in, or bands, yeah. They would have. There'd be like, yeah, bands, and it was back. So this was in the '80s, right? So the Smiths, like the English Beat, it was almost like that. They had fans that put these out. New Order. They just, it was like a fanzine, but it was like, almost like maybe it was a local thing. I don't well, know. It's weird. There's like a big thing. It really is true. It's like the, the whole like, quote, fake it until you make it sort of thing. So a lot of bands do that. Oh, we're in this. We're in that. And oh, we were, th- this is how big we are. Like, and eventually you will get to that spot. But when, when you're first promoting it, people are like, who the fuck is this? We're like, <laughs> somebody right. saw something in them. So maybe I should check them out too. So he does work. If you look at Black Flag, everybody knows you, Ian Rollins is, and Black Flag is now. But at the time, they used to make flyers for all their shows. They like be pasting, pasting them up on like telephone poles and stuff like that. And they would just constantly bombard everything. Just like a massive coverage campaign. But it got the name out. Yeah. That. And I used to be a big fan. I haven't actually listened to him in a while, so I can't say I'm a big fan right now, but... Wait, Black Flag? Yeah. I haven't listened to him in years. Really, Black Flag is awesome. I like Rollins, but I don't like him as a singer. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah go back to the TV party days. <laughs> yeah, that came out before Rollins. He, Rollins, he's not yeah. drink at all. Yeah. The song is making fun of drinking. Yeah, we got nothing better to do, and yeah... Sit around and have a couple of brews. Yeah. (laughs) Fear, that was my band. I love Fear. Oh, I'd see Fear live. Yeah. Oh, that'd be awesome. That'd be awesome. Nobody knows how old the senior Lee Bing is. He could be 80, he could be 40. (laughs) We don't know. I wonder if he's still out there kicking around. Well, he probably is. I I don't know. It's it's been quite a while. It's been over 20 years since I saw them live, but that's cool. I'd like to have seen. I know they played uh, SNL, and they were the first punk band and the last punk band for a decade to play SNL because oh, wow. all their fans showed up. Like people heard they were playing, so people came <laughs> from DC and everywhere. And what they did is that front room with all the seats, they tore the seats out of the floor so they could bosh. <laughs> but it was, yeah, it was just like. I know it was, I think it was James Belushi or John Belushi. It was like his favorite band. So he managed to play and after they're like, all right, that's it. No more punk bands. <laughs> hey, that's what it's all about, man. It's having a good time. <laughs> I started reading one of your books and then I actually ended up having to read a technical book that I had to read for work. What book would you say would be... I need a Dan Hanks starter. I want to know, yeah, what would that be? <laughs> what did you start reading, by the way? Oh, I have to look at your list real quick. It was The Black Seas of Infinity. Okay, well, The Black Seas of Infinity, if you just started reading it recently, I massively, like, I, I wrote that, like, back in 2009. And that was my first novel I ever handed out. And wow. then I got my rights back to it, 
And I got my, I had a collection of short stories down how it was dark. So I gave a respect that too. And I was like, I'm a way better writer now than it was back in 2009. I went through it and I did this massive revision of the whole thing. And I added pictures and I tried to make it worth it for people. I'm like, yeah, myself is like an expanded version. So I'm very proud of that. So if you read the revised edition, which I think I released like in, in like June or something, then that's good. I mean, I'm glad. If you read the old one, that's that was me like way back in <laughs> 2010. I've got stories that I want to write, but I don't think I've got the chops for it right now. Do you ever do that? <laughs> <laughs> when I was a kid, like... We lived in military bases, and my parents were pretty poor, so we didn't have a TV or anything. So I would go to the local library, and I'd check out a stack of books. I have them all read within a week. And then we lived on bases where there's really nothing going on, so we built tree forts and played, like, soldier with, like, bottle rockets in the woods and stuff. <laughs> and I always had this big imagination, but I felt like my imagination would be so much on all the other, all my other influences, that's not really mine. So for a long time, like I knew I wanted to write something, but I was like, but I need to come up with stuff. At some point, it's just almost your brain like clicks and goes, all right, I have tons of shit now. Like right now, I have more than I can put on paper. Do you make uh, notes about the things you want to write or do you just say, oh, hey, yeah, when definitely. it's... Yeah. Oh, you do? Okay. Yeah, there's... On my podcast, I mainly interview other authors and I talk to them about the process and everyone has a different process. The way I am is like, especially when I'm out doing physical activity, like bicycling or running or whatever, when you have all those endorphins running through your brain, that's when you're like thinking the best and much fluids and whatever. And the way I work is like when I'm working on a story, and then I get to a stopping point or I get to a blockade. Rather than trying to force it, I just don't let it go and think about it. And usually when I'm out with that bike ride or that run or whatever, I come up with a whole slew of ideas and I write them all down. And there's no way I'm going to incorporate all those ideas in that story. But at least I have all what I thought were good ideas written down. Yeah, that's awesome. That's very cool. I just looked at the clock and this time has flown by, man. I cannot believe it's as late as it is. You're like, this fucking guy, we've been listening to him forever. <laughs> no, man. It's been like so interesting and fun. So I want people to check you out. And I, if my guests want to see you, you they would go to where? DanHank.com? DanHank.com. By the way, it's a weird job with the last name. It's D-N-H-E-N-K.com. But if you go there... All my projects, my blog, my podcast, everything. But I have to say, when you're an artist, you have to do a lot of social media. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. Now it's X. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. But you know, I, I'm on everything pretty much. And one thing we haven't talked about much, but Skull Sessions with Dan Hink is your podcast. Want to just give us a little bit about that? I feel everything... I'm sure probably a lot of people say this, but I feel like every representation that comes out is like very commercialized. So it's, yeah, look at this person. I'll give you this perspective on a bidding path, whatever. Yeah, I was like, why don't I just uh, sit down and have a realistic conversation? And kind of the evolution of this is like a lot of magazines will have me interview other artists and they love for me to interview them because 
we just have a fluid conversation. I'm not like, here, here, take questions. So I was interviewing a lot of people. And then I started doing a lot of like interviews with video interviews with people. And, and I would put them up and I give them to like CNR magazine and stuff. And then at some point, I'm like, why don't I just do my own podcast? Yeah. And, and I figured that people with the most interesting stuff to talk about would be people who write stories. Like, at first, I was interviewing a lot of tattoo people, but it's, you can only go too far <laughs> with tattooing. But story universal. Yeah, we've been doing a lot more authors lately, and I love to talk about anybody, but I love talking to authors. They're just so interesting. And I think it's because I have a huge interest in writing and I write and I'm, I'll tell everybody right now, I listen to your podcast. And so when I work, I like to put a podcast on and listen to it. And it's, it's really awesome. I will say that I need to get schooled on some of these people because they're amazing. I've not heard of them, but they're amazing people. You're they awesome. Yeah. But you should have school sessions. Check it out with the idea. But yeah, that that's my promo. <laughs> but yeah, no, when, when I work on like, when, when I write, I need silence. Like some people want back on me. No, I need silence because I'm trying to, like, I'm envisioning everything in my head, like what you're seeing, what the environment is. And I record that. I don't want to be distracted by something else. But when I'm drawing or painting or whatever, I often, like, I'll put Joe Rogan on or something. And I'll just listen to a podcast. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I love it. Now, yeah, sometimes I have to have instrumental, but. Because that'll get in my head and it'll change what I'm, I'm writing. Dan, this has been awesome. I really appreciate you having you on the show tonight. It's been a blast. I really enjoyed talking to you. I just want to say I really appreciate you coming on. Love your stuff. And I really, I just can't thank you enough for being on. And we just want to say have a great night, man. Appreciate it. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. Thank you. Thanks for hanging out with us on the True Fiction Podcast. If you like what you've heard, please visit us at Facebook. You can also leave us a review on iTunes or through your favorite podcast app. Until next time, stay true and stay creative. You're too late.